Well, good morning again. Um, if you have your Bible with you, let's turn to um, Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to be looking at two verses today, Hebrews 12 and then Luke chapter 18, starting a brand new series entitled Fatal Distractions. Now, the subtitle of this is really The Seven Deadly Sins, but I knew if I titled it that, you wouldn't come. So we called it Seven, seven Fatal Distractions. Um, nobody wants to talk about sin anymore, okay? It's just it's not a popular subject. Um, very few people want to talk about it. Very few people want to delve into it. Um, in fact, our society really doesn't even have a word for it. We, we think that sin is something that is very vague and very mystical, when in fact God has given us very specific definitions of sin, both uh, in attitude as well as in our actions. And he's not fuzzy about it, and he's described it in multiple different ways, like a multifaceted diamond, so that we begin to see the full scope of sin and how it affects our lives, the lives of those around us, and how ultimately it saddens the heart of God. So in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews begins in verse 1 by saying, therefore, well, anytime the word therefore, it's referring back to what he's just been talking about. And Hebrews 11 was all about what? People of faith, people who are trusting God in just incredible ways. And he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So this cloud of witnesses are those who have gone before us, who, who have marched uh, in their lives in connection with God and in, in conjunction with God's agenda for their lives. For some of them, their great acts of faith re, you know, resulted in just tremendous miracles. For others, especially the latter part of chapter 11, uh, people lost their lives. They were thrown to lions. They were, they were martyred for their faith. They never got to see what it is all that God was going to do uh, in and through them. And so he says, this great cloud of witness, and he says, now let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. Now, my question is, what is that sin that so easily entangles us? What is it? Uh, it's important. We look at our world right now, and we see death, and we see racism, and we see disease, and we see division, economic problems, political problems, not to mention the rise of mental illness, the rise of suicide, the rise of obesity and related health issues to that. Do you know that last year, for the first time ever, the UK saw a decline uh, in life expectancy. Now, you would think with all of the technological advancement and medical advancement that we have, that no one would ever see a decline in life expectancy. And so we see all the results of sin's activity in our world, but the world will step back and say, well, that's not sin. They don't recognize those issues of being sin, but God begs to differ. And so he says, in essence, look, we've got something wrong with us, both internally and externally. We have something wrong around us, both um, personally and culturally, and, but we don't have a word for it. And so what mankind has said is, look, uh, we've got to find solutions to our problems. And if we're going to work our way through our problems and get a handle and a grip on them, then we're going to do it scientifically or with technology, or through psychology. Those are going to be our avenues by which we are going to travel to solve humanity's problems. And this is what we call cultural progress, only we're not making any progress at all. 
The world's still just as messed up as it has ever been. There's nothing any better. Uh, there might be some slight differences and advancements in different areas, but humanity is still humanity, and we're still just a wreck. Um, and so actually, this is where the Bible helps us because it points out to us these fatal distractions or these sins that are the underlying cause of our problems. Now, how many of you uh, here today are like, you're really good at, with plants, like you plant them and they actually live, right? Okay. My wife and I are not so much, right? We just planted three new plants in our, in our um, flower bed, which is the only three flowers we got in that flower bed. They don't look too good. So uh, I discovered this week that there is actually an app for that, all right? So it is called Plant-In App. And basically what you can do is, let's say your plant, the leaves are getting brown on the edges, and you're not sure what to do, and you've tried to water it more, and you've tried to get it, give it miracle grow, and nothing seems to work. You take a picture that on the app of that plant, it will tell you what the plant is, what the problem is, the solution to that problem, and the steps of application you need to take. Isn't that a wonderful thing? I'm going to try it out. My plant's out front and just not looking well. And I was told by the person I bought them from, because we have a lot of sunlight in our front. Oh, they love sunlight. They just love sunlight. Well, every, I get up and they're like drooping over, you know, you give them water and they might perk up a little bit. But that's about it. So the fact of the matter is, um, God has, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had an app for humans? Like, dude, what's your problem? Well, I don't know. Well, let me take a picture of you. And all of a sudden, God feeds back, you know, well, here's who this dude, person is, and this is their problem, and this is the solution to their problem, and here are the steps of action you need to take. Do You know, we really do have such an app. It's called the Word of God. And so God, through the Word, really takes a snapshot of us and says, listen, here is your problem. Here's the underlying sin issue behind that problem. Here's what you can do about it, and here are the steps of action you can take. So we're going to do that with all seven of these deadly sins. You say, well, what are the seven deadly sins? Well, I'm glad you asked. So let me tell you, they're pride, anger, envy, slothfulness. We don't use that word. We call it laziness. Um, gluttony. Well, oftentimes when we hear gluttony, we think, oh, it just has to do with food. No, it's any appetite that is out of control. And then greed are the seven um, distractions or deadly sins or issue of the heart that can so easily entangle us, watch this, and sidetrack us in this race of perseverance that we're living out with the Lord. And so uh, the basis of this series is this. Peter says that, the, that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking to devour who he may devour. So that means that Satan is always stalking you and he's looking for ways to take you out. He's looking for ways to entangle you in something that will cause you to step out of the race, to set God aside, to be not as involved as you used to be, or to just, dis, just um, disassociate altogether. And so uh, God's word helps us, and we're going to look at each one of these and what the, the virtue is, what God would say, well, here's the opposite of that. Here's the virtue. Here's the problem. Here's the solution. Now, let me help you get to that solution so that you begin to eradicate the problem. Now, look, how many of us compare ourselves to someone who is down and out and say, 
Well, man, I thank God I'm not like that person. You know what? That's an issue of pride. Now, we wouldn't call it that. I would say, well, no, I'm just thankful to God. I'm not, not in their position, right? Or uh, none of us wake up and say, well, today I think I'm going to commit the sin of envy. But yet, how many of us have seen somebody buy something, purchase something, acquire something that we became envious over and we felt like, God, you know, I think I'm owed that. I think that ought to be mine. And so I'm, I'm envious. We wouldn't call it that. We just know that there's something inside of us that says, oh, I really, I, I think that really should belong to me. So these are heart issues. And here's the thing about the heart. The heart reflects who we are. Our actions reflect what we do. So your heart is more a predicator of what the actions are going to be in your life than the actions themselves. And in other words, to put it this way is, at the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And all seven of these sins are issues of the human heart. And so God wants us to um, tackle these and um, figure out how we can understand what's going on, know what the solution is, take the steps of action in order to correct our course so that we continue in this race that is before us. So today we're going to talk about, and you'll turn to Luke chapter 18, we're going to talk about the pull of pride, the pull of pride. Now, pride is one of those things that nobody thinks they have it, <laughs> right? Nobody gets up and looks in the mirror and says, oh, Greg, I think you're full of pride today as I'm brushing my teeth or, you know, whatever. I don't have hair to comb, so that's not a problem. Um, but pride is the oldest sin in the universe, right? And pride is not weakening over time. But the Bible has a lot to say about pride. I'll just give you a couple of passages. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit, that word haughty doesn't mean you're a haughty like, oh, she's a haughty. It means to be proud or arrogant. Um, pride comes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 21, 4, haughty eyes and a proud heart the lamp are the lamp of the wicked, which is sin. Or James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility is what? The virtue that is opposite of pride. And 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6 says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's pride that took Satan out of heaven. It was pride that rose up in his heart that caused him to rebel against God. It was pride that took Adam and Eve out of paradise. It was pride that took King Saul off the throne in the nation of Israel. It was pride that took Nebuchadnezzar out of his Babylonian society. It was pride that changed some of the angels into demons. It is pride that brought Peter down in his betrayal of Christ. It is pride that causes the closest of friends to become arch enemies, and it is pride that is the cancer of the soul because if it's left undiagnosed and if it's left untreated, it will destroy ultimately your spiritual life. It's a very serious matter, but it's not one we take seriously. It's not one that we look at ourselves and say, oh, I think I've got pride. So let me give you a definition of pride. Pride simply replaces God as the center of the universe with me. <laughs> Now, when I talk about the center of the universe, I'm not talking about the universe out here, there. I'm talking about the universe in here. Rather than God being the center of your spirit, you're sitting on the center of your throne of your heart, you've replaced yourself. 
God's just an addendum. God's just a sidetrack, a side note, uh, and you use him when you need him, but otherwise, hands off. And pride is, is an excessive view of ourselves without regard to others. And you're going to discover pride creates a lot of dysfunction in families, in relationships, in churches, and that dysfunction oftentimes leads to destruction, right? The, the disrepair of, oh, I've gone too far, we're getting a divorce, or oh, uh, my, my children are now in rebellion against me, or our church is splitting, or multiple other things. You can always drive this back to the issue of, of pride. And in describing pride, we use words like, oh, that person's so egotistical, they're arrogant, uh, they're vain, they're conceited, they're boastful, they're big-headed. We use a lot of different words to describe pride, but it's all, in essence, pride. And pride blinds itself to its own presence, but it leaps up everywhere in our lives. Now, when I was studying this passage, and I've been reading through Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a beautiful psalm that describes the importance of God's word in our lives. And very early on in that psalm, it talks about a, an attitude of arrogance and pride and, and how the word of God begins to root that out and sift it out of us. And so uh, oftentimes, as always, the God spirit takes the word of God to confront us with our own sin issues. And I was studying pride this week. I'm thinking, well, you know, it's not really one of my issues or problems. And so I'm having my devotional time and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit says, oh, hold on, but big boy. <laughs> Uh, have a seat, roll up your sleeves. God, I got a few things to say to you. And the Holy Spirit began pointing out my prideful issues. Number one, number two, number three. Surely you're done. No, number four, number five, number six. And these were, were deep-seated pride issues that I never even realized I had until the Holy Spirit says, mm, we got some problems here. And I'm telling you, the problem with these problems, they're pride issues. And if you don't get a hold of it, if you don't repent of it, if you don't turn from it, and if you don't replace it with humility, it's not going to end well for you. And so um, I'm working through that process right now. You know, pride whispers to the overspender, you know, you deserve this, even though you've got two credit cards maxed out. I mean, you, you're probably doing better off than most Americans, so go ahead and spend it. Go ahead and buy it. You, you deserve this. It says to the alcoholic or the drug addict, you can stop whenever you want. Just, you know, another marijuana, you know, some more cocaine, a little more marijuana, another margarita. It's no big deal. You can stop anytime you want. This is what pride whispers to us. It whispers to uh, those who want to blame everybody for everything, all right? The victim mentality, the blamer. Pride says, oh, it's not your fault. It's your parents' fault. It's your boss's fault. It's your teacher in high school's fault. It's, you know, and we can, we can spend our lifetime blaming other people for where we are in life and the problems that we are dealing with on a day-in and day-out basis. But God would say, listen, it's just a, it's an issue of pride. And so what pride says is, I do not want to have to take responsibility for anything. I got somebody else I can shove that off onto. So we're going to talk about the signs of pride, the significance of it, and the solution to it. So let me give you some signs of, of pride, and there are a lot more than this. I just selected what I would consider probably the top seven. The first one is what I call spirituality, and what I mean by that is there's a new um, 
I don't know, trend that's going on in our day and time. This really started pre-COVID and, and is continuing even post-COVID. It basically says this, I love Jesus, but I don't need the church. I love Jesus, but I don't need the church. In other words, I'm a spiritual person, but I don't really need the bride of Christ. And so um, I could do a whole message on this, um, but let me just say a, a few things off the top of my head. Um, number one is that the, the bride of Christ is Jesus' bride, as flawed as we might be, and as blemished as we might be, and as imperfect as we might be. You know, when people come through our, our class 101, one of the things I say is, look, if you're looking for a perfect church, there is not one here because we are imperfect people. Even in your own family, you don't have perfection, right? I'll guarantee you there's some things going on in your family, in your extended family, that are some very difficult issues. You always have that one person or a couple of people who are just nuts, all right? You, you got the crazy people in your family, and uh, if you can't point out who that is, you are it. Uh, <laughs> and so, the, basically, the Bible says we are not to forsake ourselves to assembling together because we are the body of Christ. And so, God has described, you described the local church as a body. The heart can't say to the lungs, I don't need you. The finger can't say to the toe, I don't need you. We need one another because God has designed us for community. We need the plethora of gifts in this body of Christ so that all of us can continue to grow and to mature in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, God designed us for community. And again, there's a lot of things I could say, but you know, if you're not involved, engaged in a local church, I'm, I'm telling you, you're not giving, you're, you're not ministering, you're not using your spiritual gifts as God's designed us to do. But here's the beauty of the local church is that we can do collectively what not one person can do individually. And so when you take our church and you, you add it to the churches in our association uh, of the Metro Columbus Association, there's 125 churches in our association, we do collectively what we could not do individually. For example, back in 2008, during the economic crash, the churches collectively in our association decided to raise $1.3 million so that we could buy a building that would extend our Stowe Missions operation, which is a, our ministry to the inner city where we give free dental care and free eye care and free food and we feed people every day. And we have a, a pregnancy center and a mentoring and, and I mean, just so much stuff goes on in that center that... The church says, we'll give that money over the next three years, and they raised that money, gave that money, and then added another 500000 to to um, redo the second floor of that building, and now we have a pregnancy center there where sonograms are done, and, and women are given their prenatal uh, vitamins and everything they need to help them through their pregnancy and towards you know motherhood. But listen, no one church could do that on their own, but collectively... Amazing things are happening. Just like our associations, part of a state convention, part of our national convention, and all of our churches pool collectively our money together every single year. Every time you give to this church, a portion of that goes to the cooperative program, and that money is used to support over 9,000 missionaries both here in the United States and around the entire world reaching unreached people groups because we collectively bind ourselves together under the mission of Jesus to go and make disciples. That's why you need to be a part of a local church.
You know, not being part of a local church is trying, basically like saying, well, I want to play, you know, in the Major League Baseball. I just don't want to play on any team. Well, it just doesn't happen that way. And those who back out of church and say, well, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't need the church. What I've noticed is worship kind of goes out the back door and the Bible kind of goes out the back door. And when you're not in the word of God, God cannot challenge your pride. I think it's a very egotistical, prideful statement to say, I don't need the church. I'm just fine on my own. I can do it all on my own. That's pride. Number two is self, right? Self. We're into self. Self is looking out for number one always, right? Self says you need to do whatever it is that makes you feel good about yourself. And so we, we travel all kinds of avenues. I just, what I call Velma vanity. Velma vanity has to look good. It's not that she just has to look good. She carries a mirror everywhere she goes, but she has to look perfect because it's the only way she can feel good about herself. It's the only way she can build up her self-esteem. And not only does she have to look good and be perfect, but everybody around her also has to look good and be perfect. Otherwise, she will look down upon you as someone who is less than. Or you have someone like Eddie Education, who's always degree dropping, right? He's got 15,000 degrees. Now, I'm all about education. I have, I have uh, you know, a high degree in education. I'm not against education, but Eddie, you know, education, he's always dropping the fact that he's got all these degrees and, and everybody is less than him. He's the smartest thing on the block because, after all, I'm so highly and well-educated and, and you all are just a bunch of idiots. You ever been around a person like that? They know everything about everything, but they really know nothing, <laughs> So there, there's nothing wrong, again, with, with an education. It's the point of view. And so they tend to look at others and determine the worth of an individual on the basis of, oh, are you educated? And what school did you go to? Well, you didn't go to Harvard? Well, what's wrong? You went to Yale? Oh. I, I worked in an office um, when I was in seminary, Bass Brother Enterprises. All these guys were Harvard and Yale graduates, and uh, it was amazing how they, they would look down on each other, ridicule one another. Oh, you went to Harvard? Oh, you went to, you know. So self, we're, we're into self. Prayerlessness is number three. Prayerlessness is my declaration of independence from God. I, I don't need to pray. I've got it under control. Or our prayers begin to resemble a shopping list. And it's just all about God bless me, you know, help me, buy me. If you look in the, the scripture of the prayers, they are God-centered, right? We tend to pray people-centered, circumstance-centered, um, get God fix this for me, fix that for me, make this happen, do this, make me happy. And there's nothing wrong with asking God for things. Jesus taught us to do that. But God, Jesus put it in the context of the Lord's prayer. And he says, listen, we start in prayer, not just by jumping in and giving God our laundry list, but we start by acknowledging God, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, holy is your name, right? You, we start declaring God's greatness and his worth and seeing God who, as he is high and lifted up. And then it's thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We come now in a posture of surrender to the will of God for our lives. And then it's give us this day our daily bread. We're asking for our provisions. We are acknowledging our dependence upon God for our provision. We're acknowledging our dependence upon God for our pardon. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation. We need God's protection in this issue of spiritual warfare. Holy Spirit, I need you to root out of me those pride issues I do not see in myself so that I do not allow the roaring lion to push me aside from, from 
the rest of the, the flock of God and get me out on my own so I am easy prey for him. You kind of get in the picture. Number four is bitterness. Um, bitterness is a pride issue. It's the seed of anger planted by somebody who has hurt you. It germinates over time. And it becomes nothing but smoldering resentment. Bitterness is unfulfilled revenge. I want revenge. And that's a pride issue. Then there's unforgiveness. I have the right to feel this way. Unforgiveness is always rooted in pride. It always distances you from God and others. Right? If I feel like I have the right to bitter, un, you know, bitter, my bitterness and unforgiveness, then it's going, to, it's going to drive a huge wedge between us, and I always feel justified. Pride says I am justified in my bitterness and unforgiveness. And so people with unforgiving spirits typically think, this is what pride says, pride says, well, when they come back, crawling on their hands and knees and confessing their sin before you and asking your forgiveness, then I might forgive, right? Is that what Jesus taught? If you look at Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, somebody has hurt you, I mean really hurt you, and that root of bitterness, which the Bible says be careful doesn't rise up in you, becomes unforgiveness. You know what Jesus says? Matthew chapter 18, here's what I want you to do. Here's the problem, pride. Here's the strategy. Humility. Here's the steps of action. Here's exactly how you're to handle this. These are the steps you're supposed to take in reconciling that relationship to the best of your ability. I can count in 30 years of ministry on one hand how many Christians have actually done that. Why? Because we, we, feel, we feel justified. What did Jesus do? Our example. The Bible says that while we were what? Yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, didn't say, hey, Lord, I'll forgive them when they come crawling up to my cross and begging me to forgive them. No, Jesus died while we were yet sinners to demonstrate God's love for us. Jesus is the one who took the initiative, and he is saying to us, if somebody has hurt you, yes, they should be the one taking the initiative, but they may not be, but you should take the initiative so that you do not allow pride to rise up, resulting in bitterness and unforgiveness, because it is damaging, extremely damaging to your soul and certainly to relationships, because now you are bearing toxic emotions that will always come out in multiple different ways. This is a seriousness of pride. Number six is prejudice. Prejudice simply says, I'm better than you. It makes me feel superior, judgmental of others. And then seven is idolatry, right? So we live in this, this um, existence of no strings attached. We live in a culture now that nobody wants any strings attached. We always want to keep our options open because there's something that better that might come along because my heart isn't rooted in what is really important. My heart is rooted in what's going to make me happy and bring me ultimate satisfaction. So all of these are issues of the heart. They're issues. So if you were to put the word of God up to you and God would say, well, here's your problem. Your problem is pride. Here's the solution to this problem. And here are the steps of action you need to take in order to root that out of you, to no longer allow that sin to entangle you. That's going to keep you from running the race that I have set before you. So 
What is the significance of pride? Well, go to Luke 18. Where did this sin come from? Um, obviously, it originated with Satan prior to God, you know, putting us here on planted earth. But for us as human beings, it originated in, in the garden. In fact, all seven of these issues originated in the garden. The Bible says that God created Adam and Eve in his image, and he says, now I want you to be fruitful and multiply, and I want you to take care of my creation. You are the stewards of my creation, and uh, we're going to walk together, and we're going to talk together. And so they were vitally, emotionally, and relationally connected to their creator, to God the Father. But God says, there is one, uh, one thing you cannot do. You cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what did Satan do? Remember, Satan's like the roaring lion, only this time he comes as a slippery serpent, and he comes up to Eve, and he entices her. And the enticement is simply an enticement of pride. He says, look, God just knows that you will, you will have knowledge like he has. You will have knowledge of good and evil. In fact, he sa- here's his promise. He says, if you eat of this forbidden tree, you will become like God. And that's always the appeal of pride. You'll be able in control. You'll call the shots. You'll be, you know, you'll control your own fate. You'll be just like, like God. And they took and it caused death emotionally, spiritually, physically, and relationally. And so here's the thing, is that Adam and Eve were connected to God. Sin created a disconnect. They were righteous in God disconnected, unrighteous in God. So the entire Bible is about God's solution to that problem of Jesus coming into the world, the righteous one for the sake of the unrighteous so that he might reconnect us back to our creator and make us righteous once again. Right? Apart from Christ, we are unrighteous. We are not in a right relationship with God. We don't think right. We don't feel right. We don't relate right. We don't do anything right because sin is what's controlling us and manipulating us. And so Jesus came so that we could reconnect with our creator and we could stand before God righteous in Christ. And so now having been reconnected, God spends the rest of our lives helping us live out that righteousness here on planet earth with the people that we relate with day in and day out. How many of you struggle with sin? Anybody here? Only a few of you? Well, the rest of you is struggling with the sin of lying. I'm not sure it's one of the top seven, but we all struggle with sin. We all struggle with the, the fallout of our sin, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Now, if you become an expert at blaming somebody else for your sin, put the Bible up to you. God would say, your problem is Pride. That's why you're blaming everybody else. It's everybody else's problem. It's not your problem. So pride is rooted in self-righteousness. And because pride is rooted in self-righteousness, Jesus gave a parable about that. Because he wants us to be confronted with this pride issue. And so um, in Matthew or Luke chapter 18, Jesus gives this parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector who come into the temple, and but now notice what sets up this parable. 
verse 9 of Luke 18, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Okay, if I'm confident of my own righteousness apart from God, and my righteousness, because I'm so right, and I'm so holy, and I'm so just, and I'm so above you, that I can look down at you, that's pride. Right, that is pure pride-driven. And so Jesus is confronting this whole attitude, this whole mindset, this heart issue. So he gives this parable. Two men went up to the temple to, to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, righteousness is an attribute of God. Right? The Bible says that God is righteous, he's holy, he's good, he's right, he's without sin. And so again, we had this connection, there was a disconnect, and now we're reconnected. And so my righteousness is found in Christ, it's not found in my, myself. So here we have two individuals who approach righteousness in two different ways. The Pharisees, Pharisee tries what we call a works righteousness. Right, I've earned this. I deserve this. This is what I've done. Notice when he prayed, he, he laid out, God, I thank you that I'm not like this person, this person, and this person. And look at everything I've done. Man, I have tithed. I have fasted. I've come to temple. I've done it. He gave out his whole resume. Therefore, I've got to be righteous. Well, what did Jesus say at the end of the parable? Oh, no, he's not. As opposed to the tax collector, who is, it's a gift-based righteousness. He comes into the temple, he says, you know what? I don't even deserve to be here. I know I've done a lot of things wrong. I'm ashamed of a lot of things. He beat his breast and he just cries out for God's mercy. And God extends his mercy to him. And Jesus said at the end of the parable, that tax collector who walked into my presence who felt so dirty and shameful and fearful and all of those things, he walked out righteous, justified, as opposed to the tax collector who did not. So let me point out some things about pride and the, and the significance of it. And that is, again, pride is rooted in self-righteousness. And you see this, you look at the place of pride. Uh, the Pharisee comes into the temple. The word Pharisee means to be separated you know, the Pharisees were of a religious culture. Um, they, they were always in the temple, right? They were guardians of the law. They wanted to make sure everybody followed the law of God, followed all the rules. In fact, they were so much guardians of the rules that they made a lot of extra rules to keep you from breaking the original rules. And so they, they heaped so many rules on people, nobody could keep it, but they prided themselves that they could. And so they're in the temple, and they're always watching the temple, Right? 
So I'm sorry, ladies, but if you were in the temple, you could go to the court of women, but you better not go beyond that barrier. And if you were a Gentile, you can go to the court of the Gentiles, but you're not allowed beyond that barrier because after all, you are not keepers of the law. And if you weren't a keeper of the law, I mean, to the nth degree, they look down upon you as though you were subhuman. Now they were highly respected in their day and time because they claimed to be such keepers of the law. Now, there were times when Jesus pointed out the fact they weren't. They were prideful. He called them whitewashed tombstones. He says, you follow the law over here, but you disregard it over here. He called out their sin to them, but they never saw that. Why? Because pride refuses to see your own sin, right? Pride is self-righteous. And so they're devout, they're serious, and um, wow, they... They made sure that if you came into the temple, that you had to earn your way there, to stay there, to be there, to be comfortable there. You know, sometimes we can do that in churches. It's, it's been one of the sins in our church. I don't know that, we've, that we have adequately repented of. Years ago when we were reaching a lot of youth who were you know, what people would say from the other side of the tracks and they, they're coming in with all kinds of problems and they're, they got all kinds of different colored hair and they got tattoos and piercings and they're wearing hats in the church. And, and so we were reaching all these kids and then they were being criticized for wearing a hat or criticized for the way they looked or criticized for the, what, what they were doing and the way that they spoke, even though some of those kids, their parents were drug addicts and some of those kids, you know, they were they come from a single parent home whose, whose mother was prostituting herself and we never looked into the background oftentimes of their lives. We just saw them from the outward appearance and never really saw the depth of need in their hearts. And as a result of that, we had a fallout here. I'll never forget in a business meeting where one of our members stood up and um, was going on and on about it. And one of our youth stood up and said, so you mean to tell me that my friends have to be saved before they're allowed to come into this church? To which he responded, yes, that's right. And no longer did further did his words get out of his mouth and he realized what he said and all of a sudden sat down in shame. I'm just simply saying is, look, people need the Lord. People got a lot of issues and a lot of problems. And it's our responsibility and it's our calling as a church to reach out to those people groups that are all around us. Do you know that in Franklin County last year, that overdoses rose 74.3%. Our county, last year alone. That's on top of what was already an epidemic in our county. We need to be willing to address that. There's the posture of pride. You'll notice it says that he stood up. And he, he really he says he prays about himself or to himself. He, he uses the word God, but it's not really reverently. He's not coming with a repentant heart. He's just, he's just saying, man, God, I, you know, he's really trusting himself. Lord, you know, um, I'm thanking you didn't make me like all these other people. And here's all my credentials. And, and I'm not so bad. I haven't done anything wrong. It's not catastrophic. So, Lord, I know that I'm standing before you just righteous in your sight. Some people wrongly assume that if they have suffered in this life, maybe you have had a hard time physically, emotionally, spiritually, financially, and as a result, perhaps you've been abused or neglected and sin has been committed against you. And people say, think to themselves, well, you know what? Uh, I have suffered so much in this lifetime. 
I have literally lived hell on earth. Surely when I stand in the presence of God, he's going to let me into heaven because of what I have suffered. See, that's a pride issue. I understand the mindset. I really do. But it's a pride issue. It's kind of the, the pride that this Pharisee stood there. There's the prayer of pride. You know, you didn't make me like the robbers who take money that's not theirs, the evildoer who cheats others, or the adulterer, you know, who um, the Pharisees deemed as the unforgivable sin or like a tax collector. You know, the Pharisees prayed every day and they thank God for three things. I'm not a Roman, I'm not a woman, and I'm not a Gentile. So they had pride going into it, right? So pride, watch this. Here's the second significance of pride. It's not on your outline, is this. Pride always distorts the way we see other people. Always. See, we in the church, we can get real high and mighty, judgmental. God, I thank you that I'm not like those prostitutes. I thank you I'm not like those drug dealers. I thank you I'm not like those thieves. I thank you I'm not like so-and-so and so-and-so. And then we, as we are thanking God we're not like that, we don't ever lift a finger to even try to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because pride won't let me. I'm thankful I'm not a racist. I'm thankful I'm not. It always distorts If you want to know how proud you are, just ask how much you dislike and what you dislike in other people, because that's a good indicator. Here's the third thing, is that pride boasts in one's accomplishments. Now, this Pharisee's bragging about the fact that he ties not just once. I mean, it was only law only required once a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. And he says, oh, no, I'm doing this twice a week. That's 104 times a year. And I'm giving way beyond the tithe. And I'm doing all these things. These are all my accomplishments. Lord, look at how righteous I am. And he just starts bragging about everything. And so we can also get on that crusade. We can say, I, I'm a good person because I do, and you can fill in the blank with whatever, whatever you want. I'm a good person because, you know, I ride the bus. I have a hybrid car. Uh, I leave a low-carbon footprint. I, I only eat organic and only give my pets organic food, and I, I do this and I do that. And so we can get prideful in our accomplishments also as we look down upon others who are not doing the same. This is the whole key here is is that I, I set up my accomplishments and then I have a tendency to look down on others who are not achieving the same accomplishments I'm achieving. This is why things like prejudice exist. It's why we're all caught up into this, uh, all kinds of cancel culture and all these cancel culture is, well, if you don't live up to my standards, you're canceled, done, but if we're not careful, we can do this as believers with people around us, you know, people you work with. Maybe they are irritating to you, and maybe they, they, they are giving you a really hard time. And if we're not careful, we can develop the attitude as like, man, I'll tell you what, I'm not cheering Jesus with you, and if you don't make it, man, so what? Am I stepping on any toes yet? All right, just wondering. Now let's look at the, the exact opposite of that, the tax collector. He comes into the temple. He's not only loud so far in the temple, he, he, doesn't even, he doesn't even feel worthy of even being there. 
And notice he doesn't lift up his head in a boastful way. He, he can't even look up. He's just like looking down. He is just a prayer of humility. He realizes that he is a sinner and he recognizes that he, he deserves punishment. And so he comes with this heart of repentance. Repentance is simply saying, look, I take responsibility for my sin. I'm turning away from my sin and I'm trusting God with my sin. And he just comes down and he's like beating his chest like, oh, Lord, I, I don't even deserve to be here. I... And so Jesus says he went away justified. Why? Because he prayed in humility. He's asking God to have mercy on him, a sinner. Here's the fourth and last significance of pride. Pride, pride causes contempt, not compassion. Contempt means I look down on others Who do you have contempt for? The stupid, the lazy, the undeserving. They're ridiculous. They're annoying. Good news is that Jesus looked at the tax collector not with contempt but with compassion. This guy is crying out over his sin. He's crying out for God, for forgiveness. Listen, the closer you come to God, the clearer you view him, the greater awareness of how far you fall short of him and how much of his grace and mercy you need. Because here's subtly what pride does to us as believers. As we start getting a little prideful in our hearts, we don't recognize it as that. But have you ever noticed how you no longer really get broken over sin anymore? You, you really don't have much to confess anymore, you know, sin. It's just like, oh, you know, yeah, okay, I did a little couple of little things. We, we kind of plop that out to God. We kind of throw it all in there. Or we just say, God, forgive me of my sins. Like we, we just throw it into a blanket, like all in just like one blanket. Listen, you don't sin collectively. You sin individually. You need to repent and confess individually. But Pride won't let us do that. Pride just says, well, I'm just really not that bad. And, and man, you know, the Lord Jesus has done such a great work inside of me that I'm just where I need to be. When was the last time you ever came to the altar broken over your sin or maybe in your, the privacy of your own home that you were so broken before God that you just fell on the floor in tears over the sins that you have committed because you, here's, here's the, the um, uh, what I call the solution to pride, the, the virtue is humility. You, you come to God and here's the first one, you have a higher view of God. That is you studying God's word and you're learning about God and you're interacting with God, engaging with God and and your view of God gets higher and higher because what we tend to do is to bring God down to our level then, rather than relating God on his level. This is why Jesus taught us to pray about what? Being aware of the presence of God and the awesomeness of God and where we find that is in the word of God. And when the higher God gets lifted up, the more we begin to realize how far short we fall of him. This is like the prophet Isaiah we talked about last week. I mean, he came into the temple because King Uzziah had died. And the very thing um, that, that brought him there is the reason why he saw the Lord. And so I, Isaiah comes in and he says, you know what? Uh, I, I need the Lord. I, uh, and, and God's high and lifted up. And the more of a new view he got of God, of the seraphim flying around, crying out, holy, 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 the higher the view he gained of God, all of a sudden now, he says, now I understand how far short I followed him. This is a prophet of God who speaks for God. And what is it that God tagged his mouth? 
Woe unto me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I've never realized how I've spoken and brought such sin in my life as the result of the things that I say. If you look at the list in Proverbs of the seven things that God says he hates, four of them have to do with our speech. And the suffering that caused Isaiah to seek the Lord is the same suffering that enabled him to see the Lord. Because when you have a higher view of God, now all of a sudden you begin to get an accurate view of yourself. That's where this tax collector was, man. This tax collector had such a high view of God and he saw himself in relation to God and he comes into that situation just absolutely broken over his sin. Contrary to popular teaching in our day, God isn't our good buddy. He's not our genie in the bottle. He is not our security blanket. He is not the latest self-help guru. He is holy. He is right. He is justice. He is awesome far beyond us. And he says to us, you got a pride issue. You know, when I look at my life in connection to God, I realize that I am as about as indispensable as mud. You ever thought you were indispensable? Like nobody can do it but me. Nobody can do this job but me. Do you know that your importance is about like this. If you take a bucket of water, plunge your fist into it and withdraw it, the hole that's left is about as how indispensable you are. Life is always going to go on. When you're, you're taken off your job, life will continue to move on. When you're taken off this earth, this earth will not miss a beat. People in your family are going to love you and miss you and cry and weep and mourn over you. But I'm going to tell you, just a few generations out, they don't want to remember you. You're like three generations away of being forgotten. And so Isaiah, he's broken, he's humble in his spirit, and he had an accurate view of God. He's holy, and I'm not. And that brokenness humbled his spirit and led to an accurate view of himself to where he comes now to God in deep, deep confession. Listen, until we see the extent of our need, we will never appreciate the significance of our Savior. And that accurate view of himself then led to a renewed commitment to God's agenda. This brings us to humility. It results in a renewed commitment to fulfill God's agenda instead of our own plans. Listen, it's not about doing something great for God. It's about letting God do something significant inside of you, and then God will use you. But pride won't let us do that, right? If I, if I never am, am confronted with my pride, pride will always say to me, you're doing great, Greg. You're doing okay, Greg. Ah, you messed up a few times. That's okay. I know you got a little bitterness over here, a little unforgiveness over here, hurt feelings over here that you're not dealing with. I know you got these things going on, but if I were to put the Bible meter up, app in front of me, God would say, it is a pride issue, and that pride issue needs to be dealt with, and it needs to be dealt with now, because this sin is so going to entangle your heart, it's going to wreck you in so many different ways, and in so many different relationships. And so Isaiah said, to the Lord, here am I, send me. 
I'm going to get out of my comfort zone. I'm going to go and I'm going to fulfill your agenda, Lord. After I've seen you high and lifted up and I've experienced the train of your robe filling this temple and it's trembling and it's shaking and I've seen who I am in, in, in conjunction to you, but yet once I saw who I was and I confessed now the, the, the seraphim took the coal and he brought it off the altar, touched his lips and says, now your sin has been atoned for, your guilt has been removed. And Isaiah, once he experienced that righteousness of God being applied to his life, he says, now who will go for us? Who shall I send? And he says, here am I, send me. I thank God for many of you in this church who you spend every week of your life stepping out of your comfort zone, spending time loving other people's kids, greeting people at the door, prayer walking on the streets, volunteering your time and talents, some of you at the Stowe Center, working in our children's department, vacation Bible school in our Groveport food pantry, working at the schools, all the things that we seek to do to try to, to, to take the love of Jesus to the lives of people. Because when you see your life and you have a higher view of yourself and you see yourself in light of who God is and what God wants to do in this race that he set before us and he confronts us with pride and we say, you know what, God, I want to root out the pride. I want the virtue of humility. Who is the greatest example of humility we've ever seen but the Lord Jesus himself? And so the Apostle Paul said, let this attitude be in you, which is also in Christ, who did not consider himself equal with God, but rather he, he, he lowered himself as a servant. He came as an obedient servant. He adorned himself in hum the flesh of humanity so that he might die for our sins. Now watch this. Don't miss the end of what Paul says. He says, in light of all that Christ done, he came and, and with the nature of a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient even unto death. And as a result of that, the Bible says that God says, now I'm going to take that which Jesus has done. He's, hum he's humbled himself and I will exalt himself and I will make his name above every name. And at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What God is simply saying to us is this, the pull of pride is real. It is significant. It is interwoven so deeply within us. We cannot recognize it uh, on our own, which is why we must allow the Holy Spirit of God take the Bible app and shine it on our lives so that he begins to root out those pockets of pride so that we develop this higher view of God, an accurate view of ourselves so that we humble ourselves and we acknowledge the pride, we repent of the pride, we take responsibility for the pride and we trust God for the forgiveness of the pride so that we might now be used by God in significant ways that he desires to use us and we are willing to humble ourselves, he will lift us up. That, that's what pride, pride always pulls you down but humility always lifts you up. And so if there's a relationship that you have right now that is, you know, like there's just bitterness, there's just unforgiveness, pride says, well, if they come to me first, I'll go to them. No, 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 no. Jesus said, no, you've got the problem. Go to them. Here's the steps. Here's the process. Follow Matthew 18 and see how it comes out. And if it doesn't come out the way you want it to, there's not a restoration of the relationship. It's not your fault. You've done everything you can, but at least you have exercised humility in the process.
Let's bow our heads for a moment. Where are you? The good news is that you can walk out of here righteous in Christ. Maybe you came in here not feeling righteous. Maybe like the tax collector, you committed sin that you were embarrassed of and ashamed of and enslaved to and stuck in and controlled by and haunted by. But if you just come before the Lord in humility and acknowledge that and take responsibility for it and ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin, God says that he'll do just that, that he will heap mercy upon you so that you can walk out of here not with your head hung low but with your head up high not in self-righteousness but in the righteousness of Jesus and thanking and praising him that he has forgiven you of all of your sin and he has clothed you in his righteousness and he's enabled us to deal with one of the, the key core issues this is the sin that underlines all sin the sin of pride And so the first step in tackling that is a relationship with Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord of your life. Or you can be like the Pharisee and just trust in yourself and all the things that you've done and all your accomplishments and how much better you are than everyone else and that surely at the end of your life, God's going to weigh the grand scale and you're going to come out on the, the winning end justified before him. Listen to me. That is a lie of the enemy. You will never, ever, 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 ever be righteous before God apart from Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can make us righteous. He is the only one who can connect us to our creator. He is the only mediator between man and God. And if you've never accepted him, you've never embraced him by faith as your savior and Lord, reach out to him there this morning. Before you leave this place, ask him to forgive. Ask him to be Savior and Lord of your life. Embrace him. If you have questions about that, I'll be glad to talk with you after this this service about how to have a relationship with Jesus. But I want to appeal to us as a church I look around our community and beyond there's so much hurt there's so much pain and I know that we can't do everything but there's something we can do and it's going to require us to step out in faith it's going to require us to step out in trust it's going to require us to step out of our comfort zones it's going to require us to shed any prejudicial pride that we may have within us concerning certain groups of people because they need Jesus. And we've been commissioned by Christ to go and make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to observe all that Christ has given to us. Church, look around. We got a lot of empty seats. But I can assure you, Jesus said, the field is white unto harvest. Now pray for the laborers of the harvest to get out into the field. And so I pray for that 
for us as a church corporately that we would begin diving into God's word, get a glimpse of your father, deal with the sin issues that have entangled you, have pulled you out of the race, and get back in the game. Begin serving again. Begin reaching out again. Begin stepping out of your comfort zone again so that Christ might be glorified and magnified in all that we do. In Jesus' name.